Can everybody hear me now? You already missed the sermon. It was great. <laughs> I was just telling everybody that, that I'm, I'm just very happy to be here. One of those reasons is that 1 John is my favorite book uh, of the Bible, and, and it's just a, a blessing to be here and, and to uh, share that with you. The second thing is, uh, as Matt opened up last week with chapter 4, verse 7, that begins uh, John's climax, the culmination, uh, just the crescendo of this, this gospel of joy, and that's our, our message today. And as you go through the, the context and the text of 1 John, you can kind of see where this old man is just super excited to share uh, his gospel of, of joy, and it's truly unique. I mean, it is uniquely John, not Paul, not James, not Peter. It is John. Now, I first learned um, this book and, and the study of First John from uh, my early mentor, Dr. David Anderson, and uh, he described First John this way, and it's always just been very memorable, memorable to me, and, and I think it may help. Um, he describes First John like three porpoises that surface on the water. You have right loving, you have right learning, and you have right living. And they, they first surface off into the distance, but you've got these three porpoises that surface not once, not twice, but three times. And each time they surface, they get closer and closer until the third time you can actually just reach out and touch the porpoise. You can feel the exhale from the blowhole. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, uh, were kayaking in the uh, marshlands of uh, South Carolina. And as you exit the, the brackish water that, that dumps into a river that's not far from dumping into the Atlantic Ocean, if you sit there in your kayak very quietly, very still, with time, porpoises will surface for you. And it is um, it's just a thing of awe. It's also a thing of uh, perhaps apprehension. And I think that's kind of the feeling I get when I, I study First John, is there's this, this awe, this, this awe alongside of, of apprehension. And so in First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, begins the climatic close to his gospel. He talks about right loving. We're going to talk about that a little bit today as he closes it out, and then he goes into right learning. So those, those are two things that I'm very happy about. And the third thing is this, and, and I, actually it's a little bit of a confession. They say confession is, is good for the soul. How many of you caught Matt's sermon last week? It was, it was, I thought it was just awesome. And um, so I was smiling as Matt preached. I smiled the whole time. I loved it. And I don't know what it was. Maybe some of those smiles weren't for the right reason. So I, I want to confess that um, as soon as Matt talked about tight pants, <laughs> my mind went somewhere. I don't know if it was the words he said, how he said those words, or just his body movement, an image came to mind. And then for some reason, it seemed totally random, out of the blue, he talks about keys, and he yanks these keys out of his pocket, 13 keys on a janitorial key ring, and now that, that first image is now etched in my mind. And as he preached, joyously, I might add, as he preached, and very animated, what was first an image that was etched is now just gouged into my brain. And so Matt, with all affection, with all admiration, uh, with full appreciation of your message, this is the image that came into my mind. Do we have that image? Yeah, there it is. For, for those of you look, watching at home, you probably can't see it, but it's basically uh, Matt's face superimposed on Tiger. If you remember, Matt was doing the, the cross thing up here last week. It was, it was great. Look, I love Tigger. 
I love Matt McGill. You know, the wonderful thing about Tigger, you know, he's a wonderful thing. His top's made out of rubber. His bottom's made out of a spring. He's bouncy, trouncy, ouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But still, the most wonderful thing about Tigger is, well, he's the only one, like Matt McGill, right? He is the only one. And Matt, I, I, sincerely, I, I just loved it. I thought you did a great job. And if you get a chance, go home and, and re-look at that, that video of that and put this image in your mind. It will bring it to life. It will blow your mind. Um, it was truly a, a, a great message, Matt. Thank you. So last week was Tigger uh, and this you know, bouncy, pouncy fun. Well, this week you get another poo character. And um, if you'll put that slide up. Yeah, you get Eeyore. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I shared that with my wife earlier this week, and she just kind of, no, don't do that. But I did. So the, those of you who are visiting here for the first time today, or maybe you're watching from home and don't know me, my name is Eeyore. I'm one of the elders here at the downtown campus. Um, but anyway, I think Eeyore gets a bad rap. Uh, he gets this rap as being, you know, sad and gloomy. No, that's, that's not Eeyore. Eeyore... Eeyore was just super chill, right? He was, he was so chill. He was a philosopher, maybe a bit snarky, but he was a philosopher. Listen to this. It never hurts to look for sunshine. That is not donkey downer. That's optimistic. Yeah. It's snowing still and freezing. However, we haven't had an earthquake lately. <laughs> not donkey downer. That's the power of positive thinking. The nicest thing about the rain, it always stops, eventually. Not donkey downer. That is solid theological recognition of God's promise to Noah. He was a philosopher, and he had these great moral sayings. You know, if, if the person you're talking to doesn't appear to be listening, Eeyore says, be patient. He also said, a little consideration, a little thought for others, makes all the difference. You know what? I think Eeyore had 1 John 5, 1 through 12 on his mind. So that's where we are today, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. I know that is a lot, and so we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm not going to read the passage. We're going to unpack the passage as we read, read through it, uh, just to, to save on some time. <clears throat> and so I've broken it up, just keeping with the threes that John has throughout his, his uh, text here. We're going to wrap up on right loving, we're going to introduce this right learning, and we're going to end that with John's apologetic for the gospel of joy. So let me just give a little background, because I think that'll help speed us through uh, as we get to this, this passage in chapter 5. So this, this whole concept of right loving, <clears throat> John first introduced, excuse me one second, <clears throat> John first introduced in chapter 2 of First John <clears throat> If you go back there early in part of chapter 2, this, this first porpoise, right loving, begins to surface off in the distance. And, and he talks about knowing God. He talks about being in the light. And he ended that with this, this part here in verse 9 and 10. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. Right learning excuse me, right, loving surfaces in the distance and then it surfaces again, uh, we see in chapter 3. But as it, the porpoise gets closer, we see a little more intensity into what it means by right loving. Matter of fact, he talks about Cain and Abel. You remember that in chapter 3? And he says this, and I think it's rather stark, you know, perhaps harsh. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Keep that thought in mind. And he concludes uh, that, that um, passage on right loving this way. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And so now we get to the third surfacing in chapter 4, which Matt talked about last week. We're going to finish it up today. But beginning in chapter 4, he, he defines right loving. Uh, he describes right loving. And then towards the end and what we get into chapter uh, 5 today, he, he, he kind of uh, not only defends and describes it, he, he kind of differentiates what it means to be right loving. If you went down to verse 20 uh, of chapter 4, and this is where Matt ended last time, it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, liar, pants on fire, hanging from a cell phone tower. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. There's a little subtle definition of hate your brother in there. You may not grasp, and and maybe I'm, I'm wrongly reading into the scripture, but it certainly sounds like to hate your brother is to not have love for your brother. So the definition of hate is the absence of love. And so he ends it with this, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that's where we are today as we begin chapter 5. John is going to finish up on right loving. And uh, he's going to better explain this as that second porpoise, right learning, comes, comes to surface. But before he can get there, to go back to right loving, he has to finish with this. He has to answer two questions. Who is my brother? And then how do I love my brother? So for those of you that remember in the book of Luke, Jesus, um, in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, there was a lawyer that was present in, in, in the midst, and he asked, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. So like a, a lawyer, and I know there's one off here to my left, a lawyer asked, well, who is my neighbor? And that's where Jesus goes into uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's almost as if you know, John is concluding this, this piece on right loving, and, and he anticipates when he says, you know, um, he says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's like he's anticipating somebody in the audience saying, well, who is my brother? And so he answers that with this simple answer, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. So open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll start to unpack today's passage. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, I'm reading from uh, the ESV, and there's a little bit of of language variation here, and so I'm just going to ask you all be Eeyores as well. Chill. It's okay. We're going to get through this, and we're going to talk about some of those, those subtleties. But you see that anybody that is born again is born a child of God, And if you're a child of God, then anyone else who believes in God, he is a child of God, and he is therefore your brother. All right? Now, I know that your translation might not say everyone who believes. It might say whoever believes or uh, something along those lines. That's not a big deal. But when you get down to this thing that says has been born of God, my guess is if you have the NIV or the NASB or the King James or the New King James, it probably isn't past tense has been. It's probably present tense is born. Relax, 
it's perfectly okay. It's called a perfect tense, which means it's an action in the past with ongoing results. So the translators have to decide, am I going to emphasize the, the past event or am I going to emphasize the ongoing event? They're both right, so just relax. I can say that 62 years ago, or nearly 62 years ago, I was born, and I can stand here today and say, I am born, all right? It's, it's a past event with a, uh, an ongoing result. So don't get caught up in that. And then he finishes verse one. He's defi defining who your brother is. It's a child of God. And he says this, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Again, I think these, John is just exciting, and he's repeating something here. Your brother is a fellow man who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So he's answered, number one, who is your brother? The second part is this, how do I love my brother? And you'll see there in verse 2, he starts off by this. Now, a lot of you are familiar with uh, kind of a Bible study technique when you come to the word therefore. You look at what the word therefore is therefore. Well, anytime you come to the, the two words by this, instead of pointing backwards, he's pointing forward. So pay attention because he's going to tell us how we love our brother. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. John just gave his readers and, and by application to us the key to the mint. How do we know when I love God and obey his commandments? Verse 3, the first part of verse 3, distills this even further. And I'm going to, the way your, your Bible probably reads it, it says, for this is the love of God. And, and let me just kind of put it more in, in, in the way that we would understand it in English as opposed to the Greek construction. For this is our love for God that we keep his commandments. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm looking for John to tell me how I'm supposed to love my brother, I got that third porpoise right here in front of me. I can almost touch him about right loving. He gives me that answer. I was looking for a to-do list or a to-don't list or, or something like that. But then as you study this, you know, what was light and airy in verse 421, that whoever loves his brother must also, uh, whoever loves God must also love his brother. But when you get to this part, there's some weightiness starts to settle in. Look how he ends verse 2. Commandments is in the plural. 421, commandment is in the singular. Verse 3, commandments uh, is in the plural. And notice that he gave you a commandment there at the end of 421, and just within two verses, he repeats himself not once but twice. So three times he tells you how to love your brother. You obey his commandment. So what John is doing here, he's just intensifying or amplifying that commandment of obedience to God. And I don't know about you, but as Eeyore, and I start to think about that, all these, these isms that Eric talked about a few weeks back when we, we began this start to come to mind. You know, there's, there's perfectionism, there's, there's performanceism, there's, there's legalism that lead to judgmentalism and, and ultimately to, to failureism, right? Because if I try to do all those things on my own, I am going to fail. And so John knows that. As he writes this, he says, okay, chill, Eeyore. Go with me to verse, the, the, the rest of verse 3. And his commandments are not burdensome. Dear ones, little ones, learn this. Look to my example in, in, in this lesson. Examine my condition, John is saying. See how joyous I am in this old age with what I've gone through? See how joyous I am in my fellowship in Christ? Do, do you sense my zeal for you? 
I want you to experience the same joy, the joy of eternal life here in the now and present, all that God desires, all that he requires, all that he commands of you. It's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. You know, when Jesus confronted the, the, the Pharisees with their 613 laws, you know, they thought that, hey, you, you do these 613 laws, you're righteous. Jesus said, wait a minute. You say that adultery is a sin? I say that just thinking about another woman in lust is a sin. Read what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Being angry with your brother, taking oaths, insulting. Those are sins of the heart. So it's more than just those 613. And so it can seem burdensome, but Jesus also said, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. It's light. And John is saying the same thing. You don't understand. You don't get it. He says this. And his commandments are not burdensome. And so he continues in verse 4 with the reason why it's not burdensome. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, in these two verses, there is a lot of theology, but i got to tell you, that is good news. That is very, very good news. Some of this good news is obvious. Some of it's not so obvious. I think the first thing you can just observe and recognize is the word overcome, victory, overcome. It's the same Greek root stem, Nike. We call it in, here in America and I guess across the world because of sports fanatics, Nike. It means to win, to have victory, to overcome. There's overcoming. There's, there's victory in the, in, the, in the Christian life. So we have that victory and we can have that victory. And I know that sounds a little bit odd, so I do want to spend just a little bit of time on uh, getting a little bit deep into this. Normally, I like to stay with snorkeling gears. I'm, I'm swimming with the porpoises, but uh, you know, I don't want to get into the, the, the scuba gear and go deep. But there is something I, I want to look at. I know this is a busy slide, but I want to draw your attention to two truths. All right, For that, you can see on this slide, um, it says, for everyone who has been born... All right, we talked about that in 5.1. Your version might say is born. It's the, the, the perfect participle, completed action in the past with ongoing results. English translators got to pick one or the other. Am I going to focus on the, the, the past event or do I focus on the ongoing result? Don't worry about that. But, but look at what I've highlighted there, and, and this is what I want to get to. Has been born of God, and then I've got an arrow pointing to has overcome, and then overcomes. The first one has overcome. That's aorist tense. That's past tense. It's a simple completed, in the pa- uh, completed action in the past. And then overcomes is present tense here in the, in the current uh, uh, present day condition. So what, what am I trying to say here? Well, what I'm trying to say is this. You have victory when you first believed in Christ. The day you were born, spiritually born of God, boom, boom. You are declared righteous by God, though not yet righteous. You were born, but not yet fully mature in your spiritual walk. That is a done deal. It can never be taken away from you. It's, it's, it's salvation from the permanent penalty of sin. You are in position with Christ, and that will never be taken away. That is yours. That is victory over the world. The second truth I want to get to is in the present tense. John says you can not only have that eternal life then, you can experience eternal life in the here and now. It's available to you presently in the here and now. And again, both of these are through faith in Christ. 
I think that's what, what John is really trying to focus on for his readers of this letter, who were already believers, is that they can overcome the world today and all of its troubles and all the problems, especially if you kind of look at it today with, with COVID and civil disruptions and, and economic disruptions and what's, what's going on in the world today, you can have joy in the here and now. And that's what John wants us to come, on, uh, come to that conclusion on is by faith, by faith in Christ, it's available to you. So let me just say a couple words about faith. Um, and that is this. A lot of people have asked me over time, you know, what is faith? What, what, is, what do you mean by faith? And if I would just say, go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and it's the clearest definition of faith I can, I can think of. Um, it says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. And my easy-to-remember definition uh, is, is this. It's being convinced that something is true based on sufficient evidence but without definite proof. Being convinced of things not seen. And so that was the key. If you went back to verse 4, our faith or the ongoing believing aspect of, of our, our lives in terms of this victorious Christian life. And so faith being the key to that, um, John is going to give us now testimony. The second thing he wants us to learn is that the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, there's testimony to that, and it's rock-solid testimony. So beginning in verses 6, going through verse 9, um, John writes this. This is his apologetic, and he wants you to learn the apologetic. Verse 6 says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. So real quick here, I think we all get the testimony of the Holy Spirit. But what does John mean by the water and the blood? Well, there's two schools of thought. I think the more popular one is that um, it speaks, the water speaks to John's baptism, baptism at the beginning of his earthly ministry and then speaks to the cross. The blood speaks to the cross at the end of his earthly ministry. I think there's a lot of support for that. You go back to John's gospel and you read his gospel. He basically starts with the baptism and he ends with the crucifixion. Uh, and so you've got the water and the blood. Now, the second view is somewhat similar. Uh, the second view would be that uh, the water speaks to Christ. God incarnates physical birth here on earth, the first advent, if you will. Now, in John's gospel, he didn't spend a lot of time talking about the nativity. As a matter of fact, he didn't spend any time at all on the nativity. But if you went to the Upper Room Discourse in chapter 16 uh, in the Gospel of John, which I think this letter is, is, is based on, um, Jesus gives this example of a woman giving birth. That's the water breaking when she gives birth, and that there may be stress and pain and discomfort with that, but after that, there's this joy, this, this unbelievable joy of giving birth to a child. Uh, and since this whole thing is about joy, it very well could be that John is speaking about Jesus' physical birth. I don't know. You get to pick one or the other. It's a great testimony, whether it's the birth or it's the baptism of Jesus. If you want to think of, of water in one of those two ways, you're on the right track, and that is great testimony. The blood, I think we're, we're, um, we're in agreement with that it is the crucifixion. So John says, here are these three. 
Here are these three. He just went to an Old Testament proof, uh, two or three witnesses, uh, and he gives you three. And then he says this, and this is really fascinating, um, beginning there in verse, uh, in verse 9. And before I get to verse 9, let me just go back to how he began um, his letter. He began his letter with the witness of the apostles. He says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. The apostles were a witness to Jesus Christ. They heard his words, right? They they, they saw him, the incarnate God. They they beheld his glory. They saw and witnessed all of his wonderful acts uh, here on earth. And they touched him. John even laid on his chest at the Last Supper. They were able to, to physically touch. And that witness wasn't enough because he says here in verse 9, he, goes, he says this. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, i.e. as like ourselves, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So he gave the testimony of the apostles. Here he gives the testimony of God through the spirit, the water, and the blood. But he's not done. It's like, it's like a Ronco commercial with John. There's more. There's more. There's more. So he's got to have a third thing. And if you read with me, in verse 10, he tells you what the third thing is. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Wow. You've got, if you're a believer, the testimony's in you. And I think that's incredible in and of itself. But what is more amazing, what is just more amazing than that? And Matt talked about this last week, Tigger himself. Think about this. If you've got the Holy Spirit, you've got the, the Spirit of Christ in you. And we've been talking about this right loving, right loving, right loving, right loving, right loving. What better way to be a testimony to the world than to let that love work itself out through the power of the Spirit? Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, he said, they will know... You're my disciples if you love one another. Just, just a very powerful, powerful vision to think. They will know. That is a, a testimony. They will, they will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if you love one another. And, and that's what John is just really trying to tell everybody here is love one another. Not of your own accord. You can't generate, you can't conjure up agape love on your own. It ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. It's love from God. It can be energized through you by the Holy Spirit, but you're not going to conjure it up on your own. And to do so uh, is failure. And so he, he just kind of closes this part out in chapter 5 with um, kind of these, these two truths. Number one is this. I'm going to just jump down to... I'm going to jump down to verse 12. Um, let me just go to 11. And this is a testimony that God gave us, eternal life. So number one, God bestows eternal life. Uh, it is there as a gift of God, life in his son. And then this is the other one, is that whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. To get the life, you need Christ. You need Christ in you. So with that, let me, uh, let me just kind of, for the sake of time here, um, let me just kind of jump to three quick implications uh, from this message. Um, number one is this. There is guaranteed victory with your position in Christ. And um, 
I know most of you are, are believers, but if you're here and you're, you're, you have not yet put your faith in Christ, trusted in Christ, uh, there is this guarantee of victory over this world, this worldly system that we know is hostile to God. There's victory in that, and uh, it comes by faith. You know, there's, there's not a, a little card you have to fill out. You don't have to walk forward. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to say a prayer. Uh, you know, John makes it very clear in his gospel. Faith. Just come to faith. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's Lord and Savior. Believe that he is the Son of God. He is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is deity. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God. You're saved. That all comes by his grace through faith. Point number two, and this may be you here today, is that there is assurance. There is assurance of continual victory in your condition through being in the light, being in fellowship with, with him, by abiding in him, again, through faith in Christ. And lastly, point number three is this, ultimate joy, this experiencing of eternal life in the here and now, this victory that's available to you over this world today comes from loving God and loving acts for his people through Christ Jesus. God said, love your brother. You may not like your brother, but God says, love your brother. And in that is this great testimony for the world to see, the light and the salt for the world to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, um, man, we just want to thank you for your word. I just want to thank you for uh, John's uh, letter uh, to his readers so many years ago, a letter of encouragement for them to walk by the Spirit, as Paul would say, uh, to, uh, to just let go of the isms that tend to uh, gravitate to the surface, uh, that we just solely, solely give it up to, to you to live by the Spirit and let that, that outworking of your love uh, reach out to this world of darkness in that, in that way, that we can be a light that shines not only for you but to you, Lord, that we reflect it, we reflect that love back to you. As Matt talked about, that is love perfected, uh, perfected in Christ, uh, that we may, Lord, we just may energize off of that and let it uh, all be because of you and for you and due to you. It's in the, the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.